Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, host of Innovation Hub, in for Emily Rooney. Today, we talk to the authors of White House Burning, a book that argues that debt will cripple our economy if politicians on both sides continue to do little more than pay lip service to the problem. Take, for example, the tussle over the debt ceiling last summer. Here is House Speaker John Boehner talking about the crisis at that time, and he's rebuking the White House for wanting to raise taxes. Throughout this debate, we've promised the American people that we'd cut spending more than what we would increase the debt limit. And we also said that we would not uh, entertain any increases in taxes. So today the House is going to vote on a bill that meets that test. It's been certified uh, by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. There are no gimmicks. There are no smoke screens. It raises the debt limit and cuts government spending by a larger amount uh, than, uh, uh, than the increase in the debt ceiling. Listen, for the sake of jobs, uh, for the sake of our country, uh, I'm asking uh, uh, the representatives in the House in a bipartisan way and asking my colleagues in the Senate, let's pass this bill and end this crisis. By the fall, the so-called Super Committee tried to settle differences between Republicans and Democrats. But when they failed, President Obama said that Republicans were unwilling to make any compromises. There are still too many Republicans in Congress who have refused to listen to the voices of reason and compromise that are coming from outside of Washington. They continue to insist on protecting $100 billion worth of tax cuts for the wealthiest 2% of Americans at any cost even if it means reducing the deficit with deep cuts to things like education and medical research, even if it means deep cuts in Medicare. So at this point, at least, uh, they simply will not budge from that negotiating position. And so far, that refusal continues to be the main stumbling block that has prevented Congress from reaching an agreement to further reduce our deficit. In their new book, White House Burning, Simon Johnson and James Kwok say that the debt will eat away at America's prosperity if we don't move aggressively to deal with it. And Simon Johnson, professor at MIT's Sloan School and the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, thank you so much for being here. And James Kwok, associate professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law and a fellow at Harvard Law School's Program on Corporate Governance, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. So... I want to sort of divide this into two parts and talk about the problem and then talk about some of the solutions that you both propose in in White House burning. So so let's talk about the problem. And I want to take you back to um, a year ago when we were having this disagreement over the debt crisis. And the question was, should we raise the debt ceiling? And uh, the House of Representatives uh, Speaker John Boehner said, we're going to hold the line here and we're not going to increase taxes or increase revenue to do this. Simon Johnson, when you looked at the statements that were coming out of uh, John Boehner and the Republican caucus in the House, what did you think? I thought, uh, here we go again. Uh, We've seen this before in American history, and we've seen it around the world, when powerful people, the controlling force in the House of Representatives in this case, refuse to raise revenue, refuse to recognize that you need to fund government at a reasonable and responsible level, then you are headed towards great danger and, and, and damage with regard to fiscal policy and, and um, government debt. And yet we've seen, for example, Grover Norquist really hold the line and say it's, it's really imperative that Republicans who are running for uh, any sort of office 
uh, sign on the dotted line and say that they will not increase revenue in any form. They are dealing with that pressure from the right wing of their party. Yes, they are. It's somewhat self-imposed pressure, I have to say. I don't think anyone appointed Grover Norquist to run the Republican Party. That's the dynamic that they, that they themselves have, have created. But of course, you're right that the, the certain part of the party, a party, a part that has a great deal of uh, influence over the elected officials, is insisting no increase in taxes, no closing of loopholes in, in some versions of, of that as well. And, and this is a huge part of their problem and a huge part of our national problem. James Kwok, why did you and, and Simon Johnson get together to write this book? Was it that uh, debt crisis that occurred in the summer of 2011 that spurred you? We actually started working on the book before the 2011 debt crisis. In a way, the book grew out of our previous book, 13 Bankers, which was about the financial crisis and the power of the financial sector. And White House Burning is not a sequel to that book. But one thing we noticed was that the financial crisis obviously had enormous impacts on the country and on the economy know, many millions of people out of work. One of the impacts it had is that it provoked a vast increase in the national debt. And that increase in deficits in the national debt is what gave us the political standoff of last, last summer. If you think about it, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, this country had surpluses. We weren't worried about the national debt. The financial crisis brought deficit politics back onto the front pages of the newspapers and made possible this kind of dysfunctional showdown that we saw. And, and But you also say in the book that this has really been going on for a long time, that if you go back to 1981 when Ronald Reagan was president, he dropped the tax rate tremendously for, let's say, the people at the top. And we think that we, we debate now where in the 30 percent range people should be at the top, but he dropped that top rate from 70 percent to 50 percent. What spurred that? And did he benefit from that politically? That's that's a very important point you bring up. Um Ronald Reagan was the first modern conservative president, and he came into office in the 1970s on the backs of what we now call the conservative revolution in American politics. And this was a combination of a lot of factors. Some of it was President Nixon's moral majority of essentially of angry white men who didn't like the 1960s, but some of it was a tax revolt uh, symbolized by things like Proposition 13 in California. A lot of people at this point started getting fed up with the size of the government and started thinking we should pay lower taxes. One thing that's interesting about Reagan is that he, he is widely revered as the founding, the founding uh, father of, of modern conservatism. But Ronald Reagan, after the initial tax cuts, he actually was a pragmatic, uh, not quite a moderate, but he was quite pragmatic. He negotiated with Democrats and he raised taxes five or six times during his tenure. And that's something that today's Republicans, who owe a great deal of allegiance to Grover Norquist, don't want to uh, admit. What happened? I mean, what is there? Has there been a fundamental change? Why was Ronald Reagan able to raise taxes five or six times, but we can't really imagine somebody doing that today, particularly, uh, let's say, a Republican president? Yeah, what's happened is 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 really a big shift in the Republican Party. Um, what's happened is that in the, for a long time, the Republicans were seen as the party of fiscal responsibility. A lot of Republicans put balancing the budget first. Ronald Reagan wasn't necessarily one of them. But in order to get bills passed, he realized he needed the support of moderate Republicans and even of Democrats who controlled Congress. Uh, in the 1980s, perhaps the most important uh, shift in, in recent American political history was the rise of the conservative backbenchers led by Newt Gingrich. And over the, the 80s, and especially um, under the first President Bush, they essentially revolted against the Republican establishment and said, uh, we don't care about balancing budgets. 
The most important thing is to always cut taxes. And if we cut taxes, eventually the government will have to cut spending. And since uh, 1994, since the Republican sweep of those elections, that has become the orthodoxy within the party. Simon Johnson, talk about the importance of uh, Newt Gingrich and the Gingrich Revolution. Obviously, he's played an important role in our lives in the last year, but he really came to prominence nationally uh, in the early 90s with this sort of contract for America. That's right. And, and uh, as James just said, he led a rebellion within the Republican Party against, let's say, the, the Bob Dole, more traditional uh, Republicans who were pragmatic and, and willing to, to raise taxes when they felt that was necessary to stabilize the fiscal situation. Gingrich built his career around saying, no, no, just cut taxes. Everything else would take care of itself. In his um, proposal before the Republicans in, in the primaries just now, he recently dropped out of that race. But uh, up to that point, he was proposing a program that was scored by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget as likely to increase debt relative to our economy from where it is now, about 73% of GDP, to almost double that to close to 140% of GDP. A big increase in debt coming from someone who calls himself a fiscal conservative? Well, no other country in the world do the fiscal conservatives propose to double your debt in a period of eight years. And, and yet you say people like uh, Bob Dole, for example, in 1988, would refuse to get on board uh, with the Republican agenda and the idea of cutting taxes all the time. And he really uh, suffered for that. So it's not just uh, the lawmakers. It's also the people who elect them making sure that they cut taxes all the time. Well, making sure that the, the rhetoric is about cutting taxes. Right. That's clear. And, and, and also being very hostile to anyone who, who wants to actually raise or in, increase revenue. But uh, what, what the Republican electorate wants is, is, is quite contradictory. Uh, they're not keen on, on higher debt. They, they say that at every opportunity they would rather not have an increase in debt. And yet they, they, they're attracted again and again to people who are perhaps, I say this delicately, not entirely presenting the truth with regard to what's the likely outcome of their tax cut. And, and yet you say that really in America, it's not just Republicans. Everybody wants uh, a lot of services and not to pay much for them. Um, and I, there's a great quote from Vice President Cheney, deficits don't matter anymore. Um, talk about why deficits don't matter anymore, at least in the view um, of Vice President Cheney. Well, our interpretation, most people's interpretation of what uh, Mr. Cheney was saying was there's no political consequences of running deficits. That we used to live in, in a world, in, in a country where you had to be careful. If you were a federal level politician in the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, you, you didn't want to have too much of a deficit. You were careful about how much debt went up while you were in office. Now they really don't care. And this is partly, of course, the, the bizarre um, consequence of our success as a country. The U.S. dollar is the number one currency in the world. U.S. Treasury debt is what people around the world want to buy when, they, when they're scared and they want a safe haven. So that keeps our interest rates down. It, it's a great boon, really, to the American economy. But it also allows the politicians a lot more rope with which to hang themselves and, and us. And, and James Clark, this, this does not feel like a long-term sustainable solution to keep having uh, more deficits, uh, a higher debt. Uh, you say in the book that at the end of 2010, the national debt was $9 trillion. That's $29,000 for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. Where do you see this going? We know where it has gone. Where is it going? Well, right now, it's certainly not too late to put our fiscal house in order. As Simon said, 
Right now, we pay very low interest rates on our debt. We can borrow money comfortably at this point. What we worry about is we don't think that that situation is going to last forever. The main reasons why the United States can borrow money so cheaply are that we have a long history of fiscal responsibility, and to some extent, people still trust us to manage our economy well. And then secondly, there are not a lot of good alternatives. If you are a Middle Eastern um, oil exporter with a lot of excess cash that you want to, you want to protect the only place to put it is in U.S. Treasury bonds. We think that the world is going to change, and we're not quite sure how it's going to change, but Europe is going to get over its problems at some point in the next decade. Uh, China is going to try to become, um, try to establish a, a global reserve currency. We don't know if that's going to work or not. And we don't think we should count on the ability to, to uh, borrow money so cheaply indefinitely. But the problem is that for a politician, it's much easier to talk about the debt and not do anything about it and hope that whatever crisis we're going to face doesn't happen until the next term so you can win the current elections. I mean, since President Reagan, one of the signal features of American politics has been that politicians love to complain about deficits and the debt and then do very little about them. And it's not clear where the incentive to change that is going to come from. And we've certainly seen people like Alan Simpson, a former Republican senator from Wyoming, and and Erskine Bowles, uh, President Clinton's former chief of staff, come up with plans to really tackle the debt. But Simpson has also said that it's really hard to sell a plan like that to both Democrats and Republicans. And we actually have a little sound of him talking to Charlie Rose recently about the resistance that he's encountered. It's very specific. Uh, We don't just babble into the vapors. We go around the country, and we've been all over the United States. We tell them we don't do BS or mush, so pull up a chair. And we'll say, what would you do to cut this uh, problem? And they'd say, we'll get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse, uh, all foreign aid, all earmarks, Nancy Pelosi's airplane, Air Force One, all congressional pensions, and that'll get you about 4% out of the hole. But that's what they believe, because they don't want to touch Medicare, Medicaid, and the solvency of Social Security and defense. And there we are. I completely agree. I don't I don't actually agree with a lot of what's in um, the Bowles-Simpson plan, but I do recognize it is a plan that would, to a significant degree, solve our fiscal problems in the long term. The problem for this lies with both parties. I would say a bit more with the Republicans, but it does lie with both parties. On the Republican side, the issue is that, for reasons we've discussed earlier, it is impossible to get uh, more than one or two Republicans in the Senate, and it's impossible to get any in the House to to agree to any plan that increases tax revenues. And every bipartisan plan uh, that's come forward increases tax revenues at least, assuming that first you make the Bush tax cuts permanent, um, which is a bit complicated. So you essentially cannot have – all of these plans are dead in the water on the Republican side the moment they're proposed. The Democrats, I would say, have been somewhat more flexible. The Democratic position has always been we are willing to accept cuts to long-term entitlement programs as long as we get a significant amount of tax increases as well. But it's certainly not the case that Democrats are rushing forward and offering their proposals to cut Medicare and increase taxes because they know that would be political suicide. And I know both of you, I mean, I know you have uh, your sense of how we can come up with sort of innovative solutions. But first, Simon Johnson, I want you to take me back because I think one of the interesting things about White House burning is the title. So, look, it's it's a fascinating story and a completely forgotten story. 200 years ago, the U.S. went to war. Um, The the group that was the driving force in American politics at that moment was was what was known as the War Hawks, the original War Hawks, led by Henry Clay in the House of Representatives. They were belligerent. They wanted a confrontation. They got one with, with Great Britain. They didn't want to pay. 
for it. They didn't want to raise taxes. They didn't want to fund the military or, or the Navy. And, and the war consequently w went very badly for the Americans on a number of, of fronts. In the summer of 1814, the British took control of the Chesapeake Bay area. They invaded the American mainland and, and they took Washington, D.C. In August 1814, they burned every single official building in Washington, D.C. You can see why this doesn't get taught a lot in American schools. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> including the White House. When the British came to the Treasury Department and they smashed down the doors and they broke open every strong box, the only good news for the Americans was there was nothing in it. We, we were literally broke. Now, the U.S. didn't default on its debt at that moment, by the way, an important detail. But this was a fiscal disaster as complete as any such disaster can possibly be. The, 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 go the government was ruined. The country was at the mercy of foreign invaders. You get what you pay for in the end with regard to government services and revenue. And that lesson was learned the hardest possible way in 1814, but it was learned. And it was learned across the political spectrum. And out of that came a truly cross-political consensus that you've got to be careful. And after that, we had 150, 170 years of fiscal responsibility. And it's only in the last decade or two that we've really thrown that away. James Kroc, is that what it takes, the sort of the burning down of the White House, a, a problem of such epic proportions, but there's that there's nothing to do but face reality? Well, I don't think it's going to come to the burning of Washington again. There is no military power uh, comparable to the United States. Uh, some people say this is part of the problem, that we spend five to six times as much on our military as any other country in the world. But it is going to take something to get politicians' attention, and to get politicians' attention, you have to get the attention of the American public. What's going to happen, I think most likely what's going to happen, is we're going to have a few more rounds of what we saw last year, which is a lot of standoffs, a lot of rhetoric about the debt, and a lot of uh, packages that don't really address the problem. And probably what, what could and it's most likely to gain the attention of the political class, is that at some point, uh, investors both here and abroad are going to start becoming less interested in lending money to the United States. What will happen then is interest rates are going to go up. So the interest rates that the Treasury Department has to pay will go up. And as a result, everybody's interest rates will go up on mortgages, on credit cards, on student loans, and so on. And when that becomes a major economic issue, then I think that might be enough of a stimulus to get uh, politicians to, to turn to it. But unfortunately, this seems to be a problem that we're not going to be able to, that it's very difficult to address until it's actually hurting us. So it sounds then like you think that the reform is really going to come from the bottom up, from people saying, this is unacceptable, my mortgage rates are too high, my student loan uh, rates are too high, rather than from the top down of politicians preemptively saying, we can see what's coming down the road. We better fix it. That's correct, because I think from the as as far as the politicians are concerned, there's certainly a lot of percentage. There's a lot of benefit in talking about the debt, but as we've discussed, there isn't a lot of of benefit in coming up with actual solutions because the solutions are are, are generally perceived as painful to the public. So I think unfortunately, there's going to have to be more pain spread around before it becomes before we actually solve the problem. Simon Johnson, one of the interesting things that I think that you say in the book is that many people who benefit from government services do not realize that the services they get are from the government, which then leads them to think, well, we can cut taxes. I, I don't I don't benefit from the government. I don't I don't make use of the safety net. That's right. About forty percent of all people who receive a pension through Social Security 
think that they don't participate in any government social program. And it's about the same for Medicare. About Where do 40%. they think that the check comes from? They think it's their money. They don't understand that the way the system... It's a form of social insurance. We are paying in today to the government with the expectation and, and, and the deal being that we will get, assuming that we live to be um, beyond be, to a pensionable age, you get a pension. And if you don't survive, there are survivor benefits also for your, for your spouse and immediate family. And uh, if you live beyond the age of 65, you, you get uh, access to Medicare. So, but this is a government-run program. It's a government social insurance program. We're insuring each other through the key mechanism of the federal government. And these are not only government programs. These are the quintessential government programs of today. Social Security is 20% of government spending. Medicare by itself is 15% of federal government spending. And if you add in all the other health care benefits which the federal government is involved, including the Veterans, uh, um, Veterans Administration um, and Medicaid, it's more like 25% of government spending. And if you look out a period of one, two, three decades, health care spending, because it's not under control, will increasingly dominate our lives and our pocketbooks, both in the private economy and in terms of what the government does. So we, we really need to talk about, and that's what we do in the book, talk about what do you want the government to do? How do you want to handle the issue of your old age? It's a difficult question for many people. And, and to what extent should we have social insurance in, involved? We, we think social insurance is irreplaceable and, and needs to be funded appropriately and properly. And that's a, a big part of our argument for putting more revenue into the federal government system. Simon Johnson and James Kwok, authors of White House Burning, stand by. We will be right back to talk about your solutions to this problem and how our growing debt burden can be fixed. I'm Kara Miller, and this is The Emily Rooney Show on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. But if you want money for people with minds that hate... Welcome back to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller. We're talking today to Simon Johnson, former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, and James Kwok from the University of Connecticut School of Law. And together they've written White House Burning, The Founding Fathers, Our National Debt, and Why It Matters to You. And Simon Johnson, let's look at some of your solutions that are in the book. You note that Social Security is facing problems in large part because of an aging population, that there are fewer and fewer working people to support each retiree. How do you deal with that? Well, you can deal with it in, in, in a couple of ways. And we actually, I'd say that the heart of our proposals is to do it in a balanced way, to spread it out over time, very much not saying you need to impose a fiscal shock either on the country or on people who are retiring or, or about to retire. But basically, we think you should index the retirement age to life expectancy. As people live longer, you should have them retire a little bit later, approximately one year for every generation. So you would retire one year later than your parents retired. Right? Um, Americans who are 65 today, on average, this is not true for all demographic groups, but on average, they live, you should expect to live three years longer than Americans who were 65 in 1970. Okay, so then isn't the indexing not keeping up not keeping pace with actual uh, life expectancy? That's right, to some degree. And okay. so you, you, you're getting in expectation a longer retirement than people who were 65 in, in 1970. And we think we should pay for that by uh, lifting or indexing in a, in a different way the cap on the amount of earnings subject to the Social Security tax. And we think the Social Security tax rate 
should be adjusted. And there are some other smaller parameters that you could adjust to, to bring the Social Security Trust Fund, which is how they do this calculation, over a 75-year period, bring it back into balance. That's the, it's an accounting convention, but it's the established one, and it's not an unreasonable way to think about funding Social Security. So actually, putting Social Security on, on a sustainable funding basis is relatively easy compared to dealing with Medicare. That's the tougher problem. So let's stick with Social Security for a second. And James Crock, I think a lot of people do not realize that only the first $100,000 or so of income is subject to the Social Security tax. And actually, Warren Buffett has talked about this. He'll, he'll say, you know, okay, let's say I make $10 million a year. I'm taxed on $100,000 of it. But if my secretary makes $150,000 a year, she's taxed on almost every dollar that she makes. You know, that it seems... If anybody can afford to be taxed, it's the people who make more than $100,000, probably not the people who make $80,000 and therefore get taxed on every single dollar. Why is that? Why do we only tax the first $100,000? And if you make more, good luck. Take it home. See you later. You're exactly right. This is, I mean, this is one of the reasons why our tax system is not quite as progressive as many people think. There are a lot of taxes that actually only middle class people pay. In this case, the the cap on wages, um, the, the cap on taxable earnings for Social Security is related to the fact that Social Security is thought of as a social insurance system. So the idea is that Social Security benefits um, are somewhat progressive. So the, as you contribute more money to the system, you get more in benefits, but you don't get $1 more out for every dollar you put in as, as you earn more and more money. So Warren Buffett does not get a huge Social Security check. Exactly. He gets okay. the maximum, which I believe is about $30,000 a year. Okay. Uh, the average is about $13,000 a year. So the idea was that um, this, is, this is supposed to prevent rich people from paying enormous amounts of money they're not going to get back. Now, that said, the current cap we have was set in 1983. And what's happened since 1983 is that we've had a vast increase in inequality. So if you look at the amount of earnings that are above the, the cap, in essence, that was about... Uh, 10% of total national income in 1983. Now it's gotten up to 16 or 17% simply because the, the rich people, as we know from the past year in this country, rich people earn a much larger share of the total income than they used to. So what we propose is raising the cap so, again, only 10% of earnings escape from, from the tax. Uh, let me actually ask you about, uh, go back to Warren Buffett here. So you said he's making, and he's over 80 now, so I guess he's making it, um, uh, $30,000 a year. Now, should somebody who has 40 or $50 bi billion be taking $30,000 a year out of the U.S. Treasury? And maybe maybe that's a silly question, but I'm just wondering. No, this is a very, very good question. Um there was one change to Social Security benefits under President Clinton, I believe, which is that Warren Buffett uh, pays tax on some of his benefits, uh, which not everybody does. But, but yes, it's true. Warren Buffett is getting a stipend from the federal government. This is, a, this is an interesting question because from a purely economic perspective, I would say that it would make sense for wealthy people not to collect Social Security benefits. Uh, the reason they do is political, and it's that if you start taking away Social Security benefits from the wealthy and the upper middle class, then Social Security is going to, become, is going to be seen as a program for the poor. And once you start dividing the benefit, uh, restricting the set of beneficiaries, it's going to lose political support. So it was designed from the beginning to pay benefits to everyone in order to maintain political support. 
And that, I think, has actually worked quite well. If you contrast it to Medicaid, Medicaid is widely seen as a poverty program. And while it's quite popular, it's not nearly as popular as Medicare or Social Security. Simon Johnson, would you be a proponent of, of keeping Social Security and Medicare for everybody, no matter how wealthy they were? Yes, subject, subject to the way in which they're taxed uh, at the moment. I, I think we don't have a lot of social cohesion or social solidarity in this country. Uh, it's part of our tradition. Uh, it's probably because it's a, a nation of immigrants, among other things. Um, but this is, this is a way in which we help each other. This is a way in which we are insuring each other against what I would regard as, as the greatest unknown and the greatest risk uh, in, in modern America, which is that you'll outlive your assets, outlive your family's ability to support you, outlive your community's ability to, to really take care of you and, and provide you with, with both income and, and with health care. It, it's a very basic social need. Who, who is going to pay for your health care insurance and who's going to provide you with health care when, when you're 85 or 90? Before Medicare existed, there was no private insurance. These are uninsurable risks. You're, you're on your own completely. And, and these are risks that, I'm sure as you know, can absolutely devastate people financially. We're a rich country. We, we have a great deal of resources between us. This is a very basic, sensible, reasonable way to insure each other against these very difficult lifetime risks. Let, let's talk about uh, another issue that you bring up in the book. You, you talk about, and I think this is a great quote, the, our expensive yet mediocre health care. Um, and that is, as anybody who has been a part of the healthcare system as a patient or a provider knows, there are a lot of downsides to the healthcare system, and yet, boy, is it expensive. And we pay, on average, a lot more than most other industrialized countries. What do you do about this? This feels like an intractable problem, and I'm wondering, if, you're, if you were creating a new landscape, what would it look like? Well, if, if you look around the world and look at countries that are at all like us, that have managed to get a grip on healthcare spending, that have managed to limit the likely future increase in healthcare spending relative to the economy over the next couple of decades, there's one characteristic that stands out from, from these countries. They all have some version of a single-payer system with universal or near-universal coverage. Now, I don't say that's going to happen in the United States anytime soon. I understand we just had a debilitating political debate on this issue, that issue and didn't get very far. And whenever I make this point to audiences, when, when I speak around the country, I always emphasize my car is not parked outside and you can't set fire to it. I think it's important to, to recognize this is a deeply polarizing question. But honestly, in, in two decades, I, I think we will, having no doubt tried all kinds of uh, alternatives, come to the view that you need some version of that in the United States and, and that that is consistent with perhaps even essential to retain a private competitive market economy and, and to sell goods and services into the world competing against other countries where, where the, their internationally oriented companies have this kind of basis for their healthcare costs. Now you do point out that there are countries that have different approaches to this. I mean, England has National Health Service. Uh, there's, Canada has a certain way of doing it. Switzerland is a little more private market oriented, uh, but, but uh, buying health care is mandatory, so everybody's part of the pool. When you look around, I mean, it seems like in our healthcare debate, it would make sense to look around and say, well, gee, all these other people are trying all these other things. Let's just steal from the person who came up with the best answer. Who, who do you think came up with the best answer? Well, it's, it's often said that France perhaps is the best healthcare system in the world. I mean, I'm not sure everyone would agree with that. That's often said. Healthcare is 
universally available. It's cheap. It's high quality. Uh, they do have a bit of a problem of, of healthcare cost inflation right now, not as bad as ours, but their costs are much lower to begin with. But you know, the answer to this question is that uh, you know, saying we're going to copy some other great country out there is, is the last thing you want to say in American politics. We have this belief that we're exceptional, that we do everything better than everyone else. It's something I've seen, you know, it's something I've seen in the business world. There are industries in which the United States is not the best country, and Americans are always shocked to find that out. They think we're the, we're the best at everything, and many Americans think we have the best healthcare system in the world as well. But in, 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 the, in the company sphere, in the, in the private sector, um when it's become very clear to you that some other country and their companies are eating your lunch, you either wake up and, and you change your systems. You don't have to copy them, but you have to respond to it. Or you have no more lunch and you're out of business completely. So I, I think that, that there's a dynamic in the private sector that will ultimately help us here. Ultimately, our companies, today they're clamoring for tax reform. I, I hear all the time from CEOs and CFOs say, oh, we've got to have corporate tax reform. And I say to them, you know, we can talk about that as long as we're talking in the context of putting revenue into the system. But in 20 years, you're going to be wringing your hands not about tax reform, but about healthcare spending. Because it acts like a, a very big tax. You don't get actually anything in return, but you pay a higher tax every year. The, the healthcare sector has become like the tax farming system of the Ancien Regime in France before the French Revolution. Simon Johnson and James Kwok stay with us. We will be right back to talk more about White House burning and why the national debt is out of control. I'm Kara Miller, and this is The Emily Rooney Show on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. You can find us online at wgbh.org slash Emily, where the conversation about national debt continues. Welcome back to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller. We're talking about our massive national debt, its causes, and the long-term effects that it could have on the U.S. if we don't tackle it. And I'm joined again by Simon Johnson, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund and a professor at MIT's Sloan School. And I'm joined also by James Kwok from the University of Connecticut School of Law and a fellow at Harvard Law School. And let's talk about a couple other uh, solutions that you talk about in the book. We spend a lot of money on defense. We certainly have in the last decade or so, which, which went along with um, tax cuts. How do you sort of creatively look at how we fund defense? In the late 1990s, after the Cold War ended, Defense spending came down to about 3% of GDP, so 3% of the total amount of goods and services that we produce in this country. Now it's gotten up to close to 5% because of, not, not a big surprise to anyone, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Those wars are ending. Defense spending is going to come down modestly. But I think, you know, I think two things. One is that there's no reason why we can't bring defense spending down to late 1990s levels and still have a powerful military that can protect us. So as Lawrence Korb, a, uh, I believe he was an assistant secretary of defense under President Reagan said, he said, it was essentially, it was the, it was the military that we had as of the late Clinton years, 99, 2000, that was the military that invaded in Afghanistan and that was the military that invaded Iraq. Obviously, and they won those wars easily. We had or they won the initial phases of those wars easily. We've obviously had huge problems with the nation-building phases, which have been very controversial. 
The second thing is that there's actually a lot of um, bipartisan agreement on how to reduce defense spending. Uh, for example, we've looked at proposals by the Center for American Progress, which is a left-leaning think tank, and proposals by Senator Tom Coburn, who is one of the most conservative Repu uh, Republicans in the Senate. And they point to the exact same uh, weapons programs, and they say, we don't need this. So we don't need as many of these. We don't need um, 11 aircraft carrier groups. So uh, Defense Secretary Gates, a Republican, nominated by um, President Bush and kept on by President Obama, uh, gave a, a, a famous address where he said, we have 11 aircraft carrier groups. No other country in the world has more than one. Most of the ones with one are our allies also. Do we need 11? Can we get by with 10? So this is actually not, um, this is an area on which the current fiscal situation, I think, has been creating a bit of a consensus among left and right that we need to reduce defense spending and that we can. The problem is a little bit different in this case. The problem in this case is that defense contractors and bases are very important to the congressmen and the senators who have those contractors and those bases. And that is the political stumbling block. Simon Johnson, let me turn that over to you because I think that brings up a really interesting question. And it's the question of contributors and money. And I wonder if uh, a lot of what um, James Kwok just laid out is is not doable unless you take a certain degree of money out of the system. I mean, representatives do things partially because the people in their districts who might make some component of an aircraft carrier uh, want them to do it. Absolutely. The, the, you can call them special interests. You can call them local constituents. Uh, they're, they're very important um, supporters of, of some parts of direct government spending, most clearly, you see it around uh, defense, and I, I, I think that this is going to be a, a difficult conversation for that for that reason. But again, in the 1990s, we had defense at a reasonable level. We had taxes at a reasonable level. We had a much stronger, perhaps not perfect, but much stronger basis for funding our social insurance programs. We need to go back there. This is this is not a huge ask. The 1990s is not so long ago. We can absolutely get there, but to get there you need to have revenue on the table. And that does seem to be the sticking point. And that's why the end of this year is likely to be difficult in Washington. And that's going to have all kinds of potentially unfortunate consequences for the rest of the world. Well, and yet, has something fundamental changed? I mean, obviously, we've heard from both John McCain on the Republican side and Russ Feingold on the uh, Democratic side uh, about the importance of reforming money in politics. But then we saw the Citizens United decision. So I wonder if money and politics is instead of diminishing, accelerating and creating a, a bigger problem. I don't know what you're obviously in Washington a lot of the time. What's your view of what's going on here? Well, mon money has never been uh, as important in politics as it is now. I think that pretty much everyone, everyone agrees on that. Does it create an insurmountable obstacle? Does it prevent us from moving towards putting the, the deficit and the debt on a more sustainable Footing? I, I don't think so. I, I think that, that from an economic point of view, it's doable. From a political point of view, you can work out various kinds of deals. The problem is they have to involve revenue. And one side, the Republican side, is completely dug in very effectively around the idea that you can't have any revenue additional to, to what they regard as the baseline. If that's their view, and, and if they can't be moved off that by, by circumstance or events or, or arguments, then we have a very big problem coming. Um, James Kroc from the University of Connecticut Law School, I want to talk about one more area that you touch on in the book, and it's the issue of energy. Um, 
Obviously, we import a tremendous amount of energy into this country, and uh, we've tried to be number one in different areas, uh, solar cells, for example. What do you see happening in terms of the U.S. energy and the foreign sources of it? Well, the United States has obviously been heavily dependent on foreign sources of energy for a long time. Right now, I think this is one reason why there's been a lot of enthusiasm, some of it perhaps misplaced, but enthusiasm about uh, about fracking in this country, the ability to get uh, natural gas out of out of um, Pennsylvania and western New York. In the long term, it's clear that our energy needs are going to increase and that the domestic sources are only going to be able to contribute a small part to this. So if we continue on our current path of depending on fossil fuels, we're going to continue to have to underwrite you know, unsavory, unsavory regimes in different parts of the world. We're going to continue to have you know, oil spills like the uh, Deepwater Horizon disaster and so on. What we want to do in the book, what we propose is essentially having a market-based solution to our energy problems, and that's why we, we support having a carbon tax. Because the carbon tax is essentially a way of saying, if you're going to produce energy, you have to pay the true costs of that energy, not just the cost of drilling it and delivering it to the pump, but also the costs of, of pollution and so on. And we think that if we were able to have a carbon tax that were priced appropriately, we could actually get rid of some of the government subsidy programs for renewable energy. Um, and we wouldn't need to be in the situation where the government is trying to pick and choose winners, uh, winners in the in the energy market. I think that a lot of economists, uh, certainly Democrats, a lot, of, a lot of centrist economists would agree that that is the right way to go about it. Again, part of the challenge is, in that is, is that in this country, the word tax has become a, a four-letter word, as people say. So it's, uh, it's difficult to see how that one's going to get enacted. Yeah, we so. also propose a, a small increase in the gasoline tax phased in over two decades. And the most common question I get, when I, particularly when I appear on television programs, is, are you crazy? Have you bought gasoline recently? Do you know how much it costs? To which my response is, over two decades? You can't, sh what you actually, the cost of gasoline to you, the American taxpayer, is much more than $4.50 or whatever you're paying at the pump. It's at least $8 if you factor in all the other costs, including pollution, health costs, shifting the vehicle fleet away from being so gasoline intensive over two decades is a totally sensible policy objective, even before you get into the cost of propping up despots uh, around the world. And yet nobody even wants to talk about it. This is modern America. We want it all and we want it for free. We don't want to pay for it. Well, fine. For a while. But eventually the same basic arithmetic will catch up with us as it caught up with the founding fathers in the summer of 1814. You get what you pay for and you pay for what you get. And, and if you don't fund the government at, at an appropriate level, at the level for which you're asking the, the government to provide services, you're going to have a big problem. You know, it's interesting. We, I have talked to uh, many people who have agreed with this idea of taxing carbon. Uh, people from uh, Dan Nocera at MIT, who's trying to create the artificial leaf. Um, Richard Lester at, at MIT, who talks a lot about um, energy and, and the future of energy. Um, even people like um, Matt Weinzerl, who, who is at Harvard and, and was in the George uh, W. Bush administration, believes actually in taxing carbon. But I wonder if the uh, agreement here amongst the intelligentsia really has bears any resemblance to the debate that actually goes on on the ground uh, between Mitt Romney and uh, Barack Obama in an election year. I I really can't imagine either of them saying let's uh, let's trade carbon or let's tax carbon. Yeah, this is a this is a disturbing thing about American politics. Um, in I used to believe, I think people like me used to believe that over time, um, 
the public and political discourse would become more rational and become more based on evidence and science. And we're clearly going in some in some aspects in the wrong direction in this country. And I think part of that is the essentially we have a um, a large group of well-funded advocates in this country who are essentially science denialists. And this is the only country where advanced country where people take the idea uh, that global warming is not due to human causes, the only country where people take that idea seriously. And the people who don't take that idea seriously have a lot of money and they contribute it to political campaigns. And in this particular case, you're absolutely right. Barack Obama does not want to touch this issue. And he talks about drilling more and drilling now uh, as his energy policy. So it is, a, it is a crucial issue for the country. It's a crucial issue for the world. And uh, in the current political climate, it's hard to see how we're going to step up and address it. Finally, I'm going to have you both, and James Crock, I'll start with you. Look forward for us. We're we're in the throes of an election year. Um, I wonder, what do you think could get accomplished this year or next year? I mean, are are the solutions that you propose, which in some ways are very logical solutions, are they the kinds of solutions that anybody is ready to hear. I think here, when I when I say this, I think a little bit back to Ross Perot, and he would come out with charts and explain things to people, and there was a constituency for that, but it was not the majority. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of the policies that we've proposed are, cons- are controversial, and one side, at least one side, and perhaps both sides, will not agree with them. I think there is actually something that Barack Obama could accomplish this year if he wanted to. So at the end of this year, um, essentially all of the Bush tax cuts are going to expire. And if Congress does nothing, they are going to expire. What Barack Obama can do is he can say, I'm going to veto any bill that extends the Bush tax cuts. That in itself would solve about half of our long-term national debt problem. But that would mean that he is going to be raising taxes even for middle Americans. Yes, that's true. So, so let me address that in two ways. First of all, I think that this is one thing that a lot of people don't understand. The Bush tax cuts at the time were heavily tilted towards the rich. And that is something that is one reason why most Democrats opposed those tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. The median American family makes about $50,000 and has a tax cut that's a little bit less than $1,000. And my opinion is that while $1,000 is a lot of money and this would impose hardship on some families, what is much more important to most of the American middle class is the preservation of Social Security and the preservation of Medicare. And the vast deficits we are running and the national debt are the reason why Republicans can seriously take aim at those programs. And for example, as Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney have said, why they can, they can propose with a straight face to essentially privatize Medicare without being as immediately jeered off of the political stage. So I think that solving and maintaining the, the programs that progressives and Democrats hold dear and that are very important to the middle class requires us to address the national debt issue. The other thing I would say is that it's often said that letting the Bush tax cuts expire would hurt the economy, and that is true. I think that President Obama could say, what I'm proposing is I'm going to propose a temporary large payroll tax cut, which affects the poor and the middle class primarily, and that is going to keep the economy um, going for a couple of years. That will phase out automatically in two years. And he can say to the Republicans, you are the party of tax cuts. Are you going to block this? That's what he did in in February this year and it worked. Simon Johnson, uh, in, in the conclusion of the book, you ask questions about what kind of society we want to be. And I wonder, look out for us a year, two years, what kind of society are we? What kind of society are we becoming? Well, Winston Churchill, whose mother was American, uh, said 
the Americans always do the right thing after first exhausting all the other possibilities. I think we're going to go through a phase of other possibilities. And, and I hope there's going to be debate. I, and we wrote the book to try and, and push the debate in, in a more informed direction. For example, uh, around the budget plans of, of Paul Ryan, um, which in our assessment would absolutely eviscerate uh, Medicare. But um, people should read for themselves. People should get into this debate. And, and if you're not informed, you don't have, democracy is worth nothing. It, it really is meaningless. And that, that's me paraphrasing James Madison, the quote we have at, at, the, at the end of the book. If the electorate understands what's going on and can make informed choices and pushes the politicians to be more open and, 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 and discuss more fully the alternatives, you've got a much better chance at, at having a reasonably well-run and prosperous country in the future. Simon Johnson, professor of entrepreneurship at MIT's Sloan School, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, and the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. Thanks so much for coming in. Great discussion. And James Kwok, associate professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law and a fellow at Harvard Law School's program on corporate governments. James Kwok, thanks for being here. Thanks. It was fun. We will be back tomorrow with more. Remember that you can find us on Twitter at Emily Rooney Show or on the web at wgbh.org slash Emily. Stay tuned now for The Callie Crossley Show coming up next. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. I'm Kara Miller. Have a great afternoon.